Hi, it's Luba and Roma, and you're listening to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf Podcast. In this podcast, we talk to scholars and experts about their work and new publications to make the Arctic easy and accessible to everybody. So tune in and join our in-depth conversations that take you beyond the headlines and right into the latest ideas, challenges and the nitty-gritty of Arctic research. For the last episode of our first series, Luba and I sat down with Victoria Herman. Victoria is the president and the managing director of the Arctic Institute and one of the most renowned researchers on climate change in the Arctic. She currently serves as principal investigator of the Arctic Migration and Harmony Research Network, a major international initiative to integrate discipline-isolated research on changing Arctic migration patterns and advanced knowledge on the movement of peoples, economies, cultures and ecosystems catalyzed by environmental variability. Victoria received her PhD in Geography at the University of Cambridge as a Gates Scholar back in 2018, and she has participated in several National Geographic projects on the impact of climate change. As an assistant research professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service, Victoria teaches environmental communication, and she also teaches science communication at the University Centre of the West Fjords in Iceland. Thanks everybody for the lovely feedback we've received for the first three episodes. We hope you enjoy this conversation and we'll see you again in February for the second series. Uh, so Victoria, thanks so much for accepting our invitation to talk with us today and welcome to our uh, podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Could you describe the room you're in right now and the view from your window as accurately as possible so listeners can have a glimpse of your life? The room I am currently in is our living room, which is now filled with far too many boxes as we are on the move. And as I look outside, there is some morning light streaming in from... uh, our balcony and it is covered with our slightly failed plants that we uh we planted a couple of months ago that now have a few tomatoes on them um and a few eggplants and beyond that there's a street lamp and some trees and the city of dc uh, just awakening that sounds amazing. That sounds very lovely and very powerful. I think the awakening of DC is something I've never experienced myself, but something I, I would love to. Um, so switching gear a little, uh, as a as a person who's been working on Arctic issues and climate change for quite some years now, I think you might have a lot to share with us and and with the listeners. But could you start with describing the way you came to to the Arctic and to Arctic research. How how did it all begin? I think it began when I was just a child and I grew up listening to my grandparents' stories about surviving the Holocaust. And they were fortunate enough to 
have survived uh, concentration camps like Auschwitz and go to refugee camps in France and eventually make it to the United States. But most of our family was not that lucky. And I grew up thinking that if I had this opportunity to choose what I wanted to do for my career, that I should do something that would honor both my grandparents who were so important in my own life and the memory of those loved ones that they cared so much about uh, and perished in the 1940s. And so I went to college thinking that, that I was doing something around human rights. And then freshman year at university, I heard the words climate change for the first time. And I learned what climate change was, that it was the biggest challenge that our generation would face, and also that it was the biggest challenge to human rights. So I switched gears abruptly and started learning as much as I could about climate change and the world around us, both the natural and climatic systems, but also the human systems and how those two intersected in an ever warming world. And from there, I chose a first job here in D.C. as a junior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And while there, I had this incredible and strong mentor, Shimpeze Cunningham, and she opened up this incredible urban world to me. We worked in mega cities across the world and how to make them green, how to make sure that their transportation systems were carbon neutral and were equitable for all residents, and how you can effectively plan a city and make sure that it's ready for a changing future. And while that was incredibly exciting and I learned a lot, I also learned that cities have access to financial and political resources that more rural and remote regions don't have. So again, thinking back to my grandparents' story, that if I could be useful in helping people today facing the climate catastrophe, then what would my best value, my best position be? Um, and it didn't seem like it was going to be helping megacities. So after asking a few people what that might be, the Arctic kept coming up and I applied for a Fulbright and moved to Canada to learn and listen to as much as I could about the Arctic, about uh, how climate change was impacting the North, uh, learning from traditional knowledge holders, um, and just doing a whole lot of listening to where I could be useful. And I kept listening throughout doing a PhD in polar studies. And ultimately, I ended up being where I am today at the Arctic Institute, but also in this space where I'm mostly a connector. Um, I try my best to bring people together, whether that's through Arctic Institute partnerships or through running a research coordination network funded by the National Science Foundation uh, to make sure that people have access to 
the support and resources and connections to those places of financial and political power that they need to prepare for a climate changed Arctic. And while this is not, uh, I think, the typical way one gets into <laughs> the Arctic, uh, I I wouldn't have it any other way because I think that even though I don't work on megacities anymore, um, thinking about those cities has helped me think about the Arctic and a climate changed world with um, research that we've done within the Arctic Institute with Andreas Spotnik and Ronkild. And I, I think that having a varied journey into the Arctic professional world um, has given me a a better perspective of what non-Arctic aspects we can bring in to make our research stronger and also our capacity building projects stronger. I would say that this is quite a, a special path into the Arctic research, to be honest. It sounds really, uh, really powerful and intimate at the same time, you know, when you talk about that. Um, I've been wondering how Does your training in geography, you know, in policy studies, how um, does it inform your research? Or which conceptual frameworks uh, drive your work, you know, not only within academia, but also policymaking and while working with these questions outside the academia? Because we all have our positionality, which comes from certain discipline backgrounds. So I just wonder how, how you deal with that. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think that the biggest point that I have taken away from doing my PhD in geography is the need for true transdisciplinary theories and approaches and spaces to connect. I had the privilege of doing that PhD at the Scott Polar Research Institute at Cambridge University. And the research institute includes natural scientists like glaciologists that are also within geography, but it also includes people like me who study human systems, who study what we as humans produce um, and what that means for the natural world. And it also includes humanities scholars who are looking at the Arctic through a lens of visual discourse and uh, arts production that may also intersect with the uh, social science realm. And I think that that's quite unique in academia. We are oftentimes siloed into a particular discipline. And then within that, there are a number of theories and inevitably everyone has their own positionality, but you are still within political science or in the natural science world within geology and then breaking it down from there. But in Scott Polar, I had the chance to be challenged by people who were wildly outside of my own frame of thinking and my conceptualization of research. And I have taken that to heart with the research projects that I'm doing now that I continue to challenge both who I make sure to invite to the table as we are at the very beginnings of brainstorming a project all the way through to 
what methodologies we are using to conduct that research. Are we borrowing them? Yes, from geography, but also from sociology or um, other disciplines that we already have on our team because of that transdisciplinary view. And I actually think this is a better entry point to the type of more action-oriented research and projects that I do um, because there's a closer connection to action and translating what you are researching onto the real world, either through science policy, if you are on the more hard side of geography, or influencing the way we uh, read and consume news and how we make sense of the world. If you're more on the spectrum of my side of geography, of historical and media geography. Um, And I, I think that having both that transdisciplinary aspect, but also that easy jump from what you are conducting in a book-ended research project that will have tangible outputs. Um, And then the next step after that project has finished, where you are engaging in uh, the policy world, in the uh, decision-making world, in the education world, and how you are putting that research into action and you're making an impact with it, which I would argue is really the only ethical way to do research that touches climate change because it impacts so many people and leaving it just within the walls of academia um, is not something that, uh, you know, I would choose to do, but I hope that most people would choose not to do as we are seeing um, the true effects of a a climate change world year after year. That's really interesting. And linking it back to the policy science question, how does a researcher like you have influence uh, on on the policymaking side and how do you navigate uh, the science policy nexus? Uh, I guess, in especially in a country, uh, the United States, where sometimes climate science and climate uh, change policies do not really seem to go hand in hand. Well, I wish that was not the case. Um, it is. And uh, that means that science policy is really hard right now in the United States. I... Um, To be quite frank about it, uh, it has gotten increasingly more difficult over the past four years to find entry points to have meaningful conversations with decision makers at the national level about using science to inform policy. And that means that you need to get creative. You need to reach subnational decision makers at states, at the community level, at the tribal level, and build coalitions, build partnerships towards an aim of a more science and traditional knowledge-based policymaking process. But getting back to your question, how do I interface with science policy and how do I think that not just myself, but also the Arctic Institute, 
influences that science policy. And I think we could look at it in both a direct and an indirect way. There are direct ways that uh, we influence science policy, mostly by having conversations with decision makers and sharing our research, our opinions, and our proposals. And that could take the form of having a opportunity to testify uh, in front of the House of Representatives or the Senate, which I've done last year in 2019, or brief Congress, which I am doing in two weeks now um, around Arctic issues. It takes the form of inviting those decision makers to our own table so they can listen to research that is being produced and ask questions based on what they are legislating on. Like two weeks ago when Senator Lisa Murkowski was able to join an Arctic Institute webinar on whale acoustic research and um, the impacts of human activity for whale health that was presented by high school students in Sitka, Alaska. But it also takes indirect routes of influence. We, by publishing, um, influence the overall discourse that we have available for talking about the Arctic, and that makes its way up to decision makers. Maybe not that peer review article, but that peer review article that then gets cited in a government report or a a commentary or opinion piece that is published in a magazine like Scientific American or a news uh, outlet like The Guardian. All of these entry points into adding to our public discussion help to inform decision-making around how we use science and, more importantly, how we use science for the good of our community, the good of our country, the good of humanity. And while it is certainly difficult when you have an administration that does not believe in man-made climate change and that actively does not believe in science generally, that just means that you, again, have to think of ways to reach beyond the federal government, um, but also make uh, statements that you know will resonate with the people, right? That are not decision makers themselves, but can influence decision makers by voting, by advocating their own opinions, and by creating this wave of conversations around the issues that you are researching um, that could overwhelm decision makers and have a, a change of mind in that subject. Thanks. And now if we go to a project specifically, you've been working recently on the Migration and Harmony Research Network. Could you describe a bit what it's about, what the purpose uh, of it is, and what do you plan to do with it, and how it links or it falls into place within all your work? The Migration in Harmony project is a research coordination network that is funded by the National Science Foundation. And this is a network that tries to bring all of the researchers that are working on 
different aspects of Arctic migrations together to have conversations, to connect, hopefully to build friendships, but more pointedly to identify gaps in research, to prioritize next steps for migration research, and to create interdisciplinary research teams on the big questions that we don't have answers to yet. So we currently just launched in um, April of this year, and we have around 460 members from over 40 countries, and they span all sorts of disciplines. We have human rights lawyers and macroecologists. We have traditional knowledge holders and public health workers. We have students and senior diplomats. We tried as hard as we could to make sure that our steering committee was diverse um, from different countries, different backgrounds, and different disciplines, and that we used our steering committee to reach as many people as we could. And our aim over the next few years is to really create a space that these different disciplined researchers can come together and share their own work on forest ecology and wildfire management uh, with people who may have never uh, had an entry point to thinking about migrations in the Arctic through wildfire management, or conversely, thinking about migrations in the Arctic through migrant labor moving north. And really trying to round out how people think about an Arctic on the move, that it is not just species on the move or ships moving through the Arctic. It is not just communities displaced by climate change and labor moving north for opportunity. It is all of those things simultaneously. And if we are truly to have science-informed decision-making, we need to make sure that all types of knowledge holders are at the table and are speaking with a coherent voice that understands these different disciplines that are looking at movement in the Arctic and are moving forward together to identify what gaps need to be filled and how we need to prioritize talking to decision makers and informing society for a future where the Arctic will continuously be in motion. And in addition to that more research-based side, we also try to do work on the education side through hosting webinars and creating infographics and animated videos, and also creating a a place where early career researchers and knowledge holders can connect with opportunities and with mentors and to learn more themselves in a more targeted way through projects like the Arctic Winter College, which the network and the Arctic Institute uh, are helping to run this winter in 2021. That sounds truly amazing, to be honest. And, you know, following up on the practical or, as you said, educational side of this project, I would like actually to ask you how easy or how challenging it is at the moment in the, in the U.S. to involve students, to encourage them to participate in all these projects together with 
uh, people from different backgrounds and people from apparently different um, career stages or levels. Because sometimes, as we all know, it can be quite tough to be able to have a decent talk with a diplomat, for example, or a person from a business um, institution, because they seem to be too busy, you know, to um, to take their time and talk to the students. Um, so I'm really wondering how is it, you know, involving students in the into the Arctic studies. And how is it, how does it feel when you teach about climate change or in general about the Arctic? What's the most challenging? What's promising? Uh, how active are the students there? So I engage with students within the research coordination network on Arctic migrations. And also just personally, I volunteer a lot with educational outreach from elementary to high school students. And in the network itself, we try to create spaces for those connections in a way where students have more of the power within that conversation to share their own experiences and to feel comfortable asking people um, who might be senior diplomats or CEOs or senators uh, questions that they uh, really want to know the answers to. And I think that well acoustic webinar when we had high school students presenting um, and Senator Murkowski listening is a good example of creating that type of space with that type of power dynamic. But it's also really important to acknowledge that students have a huge yearning to learn more about how the world is changing from the climate crisis and what role they have in making sure that they are not inheriting an uninhabitable earth. And that yearning um, just needs an entry point into projects that are already happening, like migration in harmony. I truly believe that if you create youth-based positions within uh, organizations, having just that opportunity and sharing that opportunity with youth networks like the Arctic Youth Network or through um, other youth engagement networks here in the United States, like Schools in Partnership or the Close-Up Foundation, that you have really engaged students who are also from a diverse background and focus where you have some students who want to go into journalism and are interested in Arctic change and some who want to be um, ecologists and are really interested in species range changes, right? Just because uh, younger students have not yet had the opportunity to uh, specialize in something through graduate work does not mean that they are not knowledgeable themselves on their own experiences, on what they have consumed, um, what they have maybe researched in high school or even middle school, and to have earnest and scientific conversations with uh, more senior researchers. 
in addition to that type of space creating, I also do more direct educational and co-creation work with youth leaders and with students generally around climate change. Uh, One example of that is this past spring and summer, I worked closely with the uh, National Geographic Society and the Close-Up Foundation to do a series of talks and then talkbacks with almost a thousand students uh, across the United States over a series um, of a few months around climate change impacts in each of their home communities and talking about solutions that they could implement themselves, like advocating at town hall meetings for science-based solutions and ensuring that um, everyone in the community had access to places like cooling centers when it gets really hot in the summer. And I've continued that work this summer by working with the Close-Up Foundation and schools in partnership to help a a group of community task force uh, students, again, across the country, who chose different issues that were environmental, but were also social and political around police brutality and around diversity in formal education curriculums. And I got the opportunity to work with them and develop those projects and then ultimately have a Shark Tank uh, meeting over Zoom where each of the incredible groups presented their project and we were able to, with some other judges, uh, talk about what they could improve upon and how they could actually implement those solutions. And that type of collaboration with students is really exciting because you get to see the creativity, the insights, and the passion of students that uh, gives you a little courage to continue working on climate change, even as the world is falling apart around you. (laughs) That's so true. And it sounds like a very busy schedule for summer 2020, I must say. (laughs) Yeah. Despite all the things happening around, (laughs) that's truly amazing. You know, I wonder if any of your students um, participated in um, the Fridays for Future movement or how did they react, for example, to Greta Thunberg and her actions? You know, I wonder if they embraced the agenda, like her agenda uh, completely or uh, if there were any differences, you know, compared to the European understanding of climate change issues and the approaches to climate change issues and maybe like discourse around climate change. The United States and U.S. territories are incredibly diverse, not just in terms of culture, but also in education curriculum and access to speedy internet connections, which means that students come into the climate conversation at various points based on the culture of their hometown, access to curriculum that increases climate literacy, uh, and how much access they have to a strong internet connection where they can do their own research. So I think that 
uh, from students that I have had the privilege of working with, they are really diverse in how they have come to climate change, where they are in understanding how the climate is changing and how it's impacting their home community and the role that they see for themselves in making sure that our planet is habitable for everyone and everything on it and limiting the loss and damage and devastation of climate change. And in that regard, I have had students that this was their first entry point into talking about climate change, that they didn't have an opportunity in their hometown to talk about why that huge flood that happened three years ago is connected to this global system change. And I've had students that are far more active in climate activism than I am and are true leaders in this space. So they really are across the spectrum, um, I think, in a way that is more diverse in climate literacy, uh, you know, less to more climate literacy and more and less engaged than their European counterparts just by function of the United States cultural map, its internet map, and how education curriculum is so defined by uh, local school boards and states deciding what is and is not taught, most of which do not include climate change. Um, All of that being said, I'm also teaching environmental communications for undergraduate students at Georgetown University this fall. And I sent out a survey this summer asking uh, for what students were most interested in learning and what speakers they would like to see in class. And although no one put Greta, which I have had in past uh, semesters, students really think that I am far more connected than I am. Uh, they, they did put several youth climate leaders and youth climate organizations and that they were interested in learning more about this movement. So I think that the higher end of climate engaged youth of undergraduate students um, is also not just engaged, but inspired and ready to act and to learn more and translate that education into tangible activism or advocacy, or maybe more uh, research-based or blended uh, careers like myself and, and others in this field have pursued. Do you feel like you're more an activist or researcher based on this, this conversation we've had, but also based on your experience? Where, where do you feel the most at home? I'm not sure that I could say that I feel most at home at any one specific label. I would say I feel most at home when I can make connections. And I'm not sure if that means that I am more of a researcher or more of an advocate, but I I feel most comfortable when I'm bringing people together towards system or community change. And a recent example of this is earlier this spring, there was a call from a foundation 
um, that was around climate change adaptation and public health. Uh, and the call was for a U.S. city to work with an international city on a climate solution that would promote health. And as soon as I saw that, I knew that I could make a connection between city leaders and um, diplomats outside of the U.S. and U.S. cities. And so I worked to make that connection and help write a proposal between um, the city of Kalamazoo in Michigan and the city of Turku in Finland around a circular food economy that would be able to withstand climate impacts. And that type of space of bringing people together that have different expertise and different experiences towards real system change that will help people withstand the climate crisis is what I am most passionate about and where I feel most comfortable. That's not to say that I do not do baseline research, which uh, I do still do, right? I have uh, a current grant with the national, with the national geographic society on uh more foundational research about climate relocations in Fiji. And I am still an advocate, right? I still attend protests. I still advocate for system change through op-eds and through making connections in um, the D.C. area to try to initiate change in our federal decision-making. So those things are still part of my identity, uh, but I think they, they really intersect when I am able to bring academics, bring practitioners, bring city decision-makers or community decision-makers together to make change together. And if I could be the facilitator of that, uh, which isn't so much in my my public life, but in the behind the scenes work, uh, that's, I think, where my skill set fits best for making an impact. Uh, and also where I think uh, we need people to, to work, to do that hard work that is just finding the right people to bring together, to create the table that brings them together and to hand over a platform to make sure that the changes they envision for their community, like that circular food economy, have the financial, technical, political research support needed to make them true change agents. So interesting, because I think that's you're really trailblazing your own research path and leading the way for a more practical approach to research. And if we look at all you do, the communication, the teaching, the advocacy, the publications and all the projects you have, and also the different array of people you interact with, how do you manage to navigate between research, publication, teaching, climate activism and personal life? And could you perhaps give a couple of life hacks or tips for early career researchers or for young people willing to get into Arctic research and climate change advocacy, what would you recommend they do? Uh, uh, Where would you like them to start? 
The short answer is that it is really hard. I am exhausted most of the time. Uh, I am passionate about what uh, we do together, and I'm always willing, maybe too much so, to help with new projects, but it does come at a cost. And both just the, the time and physical wellness cost, but also um, getting back, Roman, to your um, original question about where I feel most comfortable on that research to advocate spectrum. It, it does mean that it's more difficult to find a home. And that means that it is more difficult to identify what metrics you should use to measure your success. In academia, there is, for better or worse, a series of metrics that we measure ourselves against. How many peer review publications do you have? How many grants have you taken in? Um, and to a lesser extent, what are your teacher evaluations? But there is a concrete set of things that you can measure yourself and you know how you are doing in your field. The same is true for advocacy, right? How many changes have you been able to advocate for? How many people have you been able to have join your campaign? What coalitions have you been able to build across different uh, organizations? When you are in between these different spaces, that also means that you have to find your own metrics for success. And it is easy to look at the fields and the sectors that you are adjacent to and that you work in and feel like you are not accomplishing enough because you are not meeting the metrics of people more fully in that space. You haven't produced enough peer review papers. You haven't made enough coalition building um, in the past year. So in terms of life hacks, I think for early career researchers, it's important for researchers to take some time and think about where they are most interested in going with their career. Is it more formally in academia or is it in this blended space or is it in the industry? And the sooner you can think hard about where you want to pursue, the easier it will be to train yourself not to continue to measure how successful you are um, based on metrics outside of your field, especially for early career researchers that are pursuing masters or PhDs. It's easy to just think about success in academic terms, but the sooner that you're able to think about maybe academia is not the only place that I will call home, you can start thinking about what metrics of success matter most to you and to acknowledge that the system that has created those academic measures of success, though important for your master's or PhD, will not be important in your career after your degrees are finished. So I think finding those metrics of success is really important um, and ensuring that 
you are setting time aside to really think hard about that. And you are not putting it off to when you are finished with your master's or PhD, or when you happen to have time, because it is exhausting to be doing all of these things. And if you are not actively scheduling that time to think critically about yourself and your career and what you want, then you are never going to do that conversation with yourself justice. And I think the the second life hack that I can give is to make sure that in your entire journey from student to early career researcher to a senior researcher that you have a community around you, that you are not isolating yourself, which can again be the case in graduate school, um, especially if you have a more hostile department or supervisor that is distant, making sure that you are actively building up your community. And that could be through early career networks. It could be through attending events and finding people who are in the same space or step of their career as you are. But reaching out and not being afraid to build up a community of real friends in the field that are not solely tied to your immediate degree or your first job um, out of your master's or PhD, but are these people that you can rely on as a social safety net and as thought partners as you're brainstorming your next project. And of course, the final life hack is to always have a dog at your side because they make life infinitely better. A dog is <laughs> yeah. important, really important. Very, very the important. Most important part. And, and I think that, that sounds, sounds like... like a, a... Oh, go ahead, Luba. Sorry. Um, I just wanted to say also about dogs, you know, in life of researchers, it's, uh, I think it's one of of many ways to uh, come down and truly focus on what's around you, you know, and do your own meditation in a way. And I think your words, that the last words that you said, they sounded like a brilliant wrap up, you know, and very inspiring insight for our listeners. And if I can add something, I think your passion is very contagious and I'm sure it lends, uh, or I hope it will inspire many people who listen to this to join the climate advocacy movement and also to involve themselves in, in Arctic research. Well, that is the hope. So uh, all of you listeners out there, please join us in the climate fight and follow up with a conversation with me. You can find me over at the Arctic Institute's webpage. Um, and I would love to see how we can work together and continue the good fight. Is yeah, that... and let's hope that the Arctic Institute can also become one of the major points of connection, you know, for early career researchers and a safe place to do uh, research and to share our thoughts. Absolutely. And is there a way people can follow you uh, beyond the Arctic Institute? Do you have social medias people can just follow you? I do have social media. Um you can follow me on Twitter at V-S-Herman, H-E-R-R-M-A-N-N, and on Instagram, which I am not very good at, at Dr. Victoria Herman. Uh, I promise I will post some photos of my dog there. 
Hello everybody, Romain again here for the outro. Not only does this conclude this week's episode of the Arctic Institute Bookshelf Podcast, but as I said in the beginning, this was also the last episode of our first series. We hope you did enjoy our conversation with Victoria. If you've listened until the end first, thank you so, so much. As I always say, it means so much to us. And if you enjoy our conversations, why not share the podcast with a friend? We promise to you that next year in 2021, most probably February, we'll start the second series. As always, Lube and I will aim to bring Arctic research into your ears so you can go for a run or walk the dog listening to amazing new Arctic publications and find out more about the researchers behind them. Next year, we'll be joined by a new podcast co-host and we have a few other surprises in store for you. Every one of us here at the Arctic Institute wishes you a wonderful end of 2020 and a happy start of 2021. Thank you and take care.